Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We are here once again to discuss all the latest action in the World Championship of MotoGP. My name is Neil Morrison. I'm freshly back from Andalusia. Thankful to say that. And I'm glad to say also that I am joined today by the venerable Mr. David Emmett of MotorMatters.com. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. We were due to be joined also by the venerable Stephen English, but I believe he may have uh, abandoned us in favour of uh, some of that there golf. He would abandon just about everything uh, in favour of that there golf. I mean, when I come to rule the world, of course, golf will be banned. But um, up until then, we have to uh, allow Steve his weakness. Yes, exactly. He might even abandon might even abandon a motorcycle race for that there golf uh, knowing he probably would yes yes knowing him but uh yeah well i mean we're, we're coming back at you for a third straight episode with uh, action from Jerez because we had uh, a double header to kick off the moto gp season obviously the first time since 1949 since the championship has started that we've had uh, the same circuit host two Grand Prix, uh, two Grand Prix held on back-to-back weekends. That in itself was a bit strange. Uh, we had a we had a sense of deja vu on Friday morning. Oh and wait, 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 Neil! I thought this one was at Andalusia. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, not the Spanish one. It was the Andalusian <laughs> one, of course. Yeah, how could I uh, overlook that uh, that difference there? But yes, David, it was uh, it was a strange one in 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 effect. Um, because, well, we, we started on Friday and everyone kind of had a, a decent setting or most of the fast guys had a decent setting and, um, well, there wasn't maybe as much to talk about as there, as there are in normal circumstances. However, on Sunday, it ended up being pretty dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on Friday, I mean, it, it was sort of odd because you were expecting the, you know, everyone's already had a race there. Everyone's got all their data. The conditions were... Uh, similar except probably what what three or four degrees hotter so um uh, the you know it's, it's not like going testing in march and then coming back in may where there, there could be 10 15 degrees so yeah you would have expected it just a repeat but it was anything well it was a there was a repeat at the front but it was anything but a repeat ever any everywhere else yeah some uh some really crazy storylines uh, throughout the weekend uh david because i was there uh I would like to ask you, I mean, can you really tell, or is there any real difference when you're watching the, the televised product that uh, it's behind closed doors? Well, apart from the fact that there's no crowds, um, and I mean, to an extent, almost sort of, you know, bl- a blessing in disguise, There, what there isn't is uh, the big smoke bombs, which people like to uh, let off, which is always really, really irritating. <laughs> Both when you're there and um, uh, especially for the riders, but also uh, on TV because you can't see so well. It always managed to drift in front of the camera. But I mean, basically, once it starts, once once the bikes take off, then that's it. Then that's the only thing that matters. You forget about that. And I think that's a little bit different to football because uh, sports, you know, like football or sports where the the, the noise is the, the noise levels are different. The crowd are a really, really big part of it. And although crowds are a really, really part, a big part of motorcycle racing, the motorcycles themselves are louder than motor, than uh, um, they're, they're, you know they're, 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 the motorbikes are louder than the crowds. So yeah, it didn't miss it much. It was just odd seeing them race against the backdrop of empty grandstands. Yeah, for sure. It was a strange, uh, certainly a strange side at the end. I liked uh, Valentino Rossi's celebration very, very much indeed when he uh, climbed the uh, the trackside fences and started waving to the crowd or the imaginary crowd in his head. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, a strange situation all around, I think. But um, but yeah, once as you said, once the bikes are up and running, it's um, it's it's situation normal, I suppose. Yeah, a, a question for you: Was it hotter there? Uh, I mean, did it, did you really notice that? Because you were there for both weeks and. Uh, was it? Did it feel hotter this, this second weekend than it did the first weekend? Because it, it really seemed. Because you also saw people like Nagashima getting off the bike in Moto Two, and just looking completely destroyed. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because with the the restrictions that were in place, we were inside all day from eight a.m. until seven p.m. at night when you were leaving the track, um, and you were inside in a, an air conditioned media center that the whole time, but. And, you know, to be honest to me, like above 35 degrees is just insufferable. <laughs> so whether it's 
37 or 38, I couldn't really tell that much because I wasn't spending so much time outside. Um, but judging by the riders and what they were saying after the MotoGP race on Sunday, it certainly seemed that, uh, that this Grand Prix was more demanding than, uh, than the one we had the weekend before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely looked that way. It seemed to take a lot more out of the riders, but also perhaps because it's back-to-back races, which is you know a, a, another question of um, things. Because back-to-back races are always um, that little bit more stressful for for everybody involved. So let's start with uh, with well many big storylines from the weekend, but uh, probably the biggest one. Uh, we really didn't think we would be talking about him again, but uh, Mark Marquez managed to do something pretty incredible, even though he didn't ma- make the race. Um, he showed up on Saturday. He went out in FP3, what, four days after uh, he had had surgery to fit a plate and 12 screws to his broken right humerus in his upper arm. Um, I mean, this was... Uh, this is kind of Herculean stuff, David, wasn't it? Like we, we, if you go back and listen to last week's podcast, we were writing them off, thinking he might not even make Brno, uh, the Red Bull ring. There'll be a real struggle, and here he was. I think uh, within three laps and in, in FP three, um, one second less than one second off the the top guys. Yeah, I mean it was it was extremely impressive, but, but, but like all things, and it, uh, again, it, it's about uh, will the will and drive and ambition that these riders have is, is, I mean, you just cannot underestimate it. It is such a, uh, such an important part of them and such a drive, such a, uh, yeah, they will do almost anything, uh, to ride. Um, you know, without wishing to denigrate what Mark Marcus did, but in a way he was lucky. Um, the, the, the way that, uh, the arm broke being the, the, the facts that he broke, that he broke his arm because the wheel hit his arm meant it, it sort of snapped more or less in the middle. And you could see that he posted on his Instagram page. People should really go to Mark Marcus's Instagram page to see it because you can actually see the broken arm and the, uh, uh, and the screws and how it's all been held together. But it, it broke sort of fortuitously in the middle. That meant that they could get a really good, decent, long, chunk of titanium on the uh, uh, on the bone uh, to hold it together uh, so I, I i suspect that it had quite a lot of structural strength and then it was a question of um you know basically can how much pain can mark marquez endure and like all motor, uh, motorcycle races he can endure an awful lot because i mean i heard uh, i heard later that uh, he had basically been doing uh, press ups on Tuesday night after his uh, after his operation, just to feel how strong he was, how 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 well it felt, how uh, how well it felt, and the fact, I mean, that you would even consider doing that is, of course, madness. Um, but it, you know, he had to convince Honda. When he realised that okay, it's not so bad, it's not so bad. Maybe I can do something. Then he had to convince Honda that uh, he could ride, and it was worth his while uh, attempting to ride. And if you look at the fact that there were only thirteen riders who finished, um, if he'd have been able to get to the grid, it would have been worth his while. Yeah, he could have picked up two or three points had he done so. Uh, yeah, and in a in a championship like, like, championship like this, thirteen races in eighteen weeks, where you know anything could happen. Two or three points could be the difference. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So, what, why did he pull out in the end? I mean, it seems like a, an obvious question to ask. Why did the guy pull out four days after having an operation on a broken humerus? But, uh, <laughs> but if he was able to go relatively quickly in in FP three and, and pretty quickly in FP four, I think he ended FP four one second off uh, the fastest rider. Um, yeah, you can actually see what happened to him in in FP four if you take a look at the, uh, at the timesheets because he goes out and he does a really good run. Uh, uh, his first run and uh, each lap is getting faster than the next he came back in and uh, went out on his next run did an out lap and immediately came back in again Um, something shifted either in his arm uh, with the with the plate something like that perhaps uh, infection or inflammation or uh, something but suddenly he lost strength and he, and he and he felt the pain was unsupportable he said to his team because again that was one of the compromises that he'd made 
that Honda Honda didn't really want him to do this. But he said, look, I'm going to be sensible. Let me try. I'll sit out Friday. Let me try on Saturday. And if I really don't think I can manage it, I will stop. Um, and to be fair, he was good to his word. He went out. He tried. Uh, the pain, it, it went well up until his second run in FP4. Um, he felt something shift. He felt, you know, he felt something in his arm. The pain, he was, he lost strength. The pain grew a lot more. Uh, he tried in Q1 again, outlap. The pain was still there, came back straight, straight back in again and, and, and gave up on it, which I, it was obviously the right decision. But these, because it is such a fresh injury, you know, it just takes the smallest thing to upset it again. So, yeah, I mean, in a week, in what is it, two weeks' time now, he should be, uh, well, actually, no, we're, we're recording this on the Tuesday, so it's uh, nine, ten days. Um, it should be a little bit healed. It should be a little bit better. It should be, be a little bit stronger, and he should be able to support a little bit more pain. If he was able to do press-ups the day after the surgery, he's probably doing pull-ups in, uh, <laughs> in a bar in his, his living room or his gym by this stage, you would imagine. Oh, yeah, you would imagine so. You would imagine that he's basically doing, you know, bicep curls with uh, with a uh, a full RC213V, which he's got lying around in his, uh, in his hand or something. But yes, and uh, handstands with his brother standing on his feet. <laughs> now, there is a sight. Uh, for your imagination, uh, this obviously has big uh, implications for for the championship. We we didn't expect Mark to score any points last weekend. Um, however, that is another zero next to his name. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty big amount. Fabio Cordero has fifty points in the championship, and, and Marquez has zero. Um, maybe we're getting at this question a bit early in the episode, but uh, I mean, is it? Are we are we writing them off at this stage? Well, there are 11 races left and Mark Marquez is 50 points behind. And if Mark Marquez wins the next 11 races and Fabio Quartararo uh, wins, uh, uh, finishes second in the next 11 races, uh, then Mark Marquez will finish five points ahead of Fabio Quartararo. So mathematically, the championship is still open. Now, realistically, uh, even a fully fit Mark Marquez isn't going to win 11 races in a row. Um, I think his current record is 10. I mean, it's really, really, it's going to be really, really difficult because there are going to be tracks where he doesn't do so well. Um, even if he was fully fit, would he really be able to beat the Ducatis at the Red Bull Ring, for example? Would he be able to take enough points on uh, Yamaha? Um, I did see that uh, on the website of the Spanish Daily um, uh, uh, Ass.com. There was a an interesting chart where um, they had worked out the number of points that Mark Marquez had outscored Fabio Quartararo by last year at the circuits at which we're going to race, and they came to 60, something like 66 points or something. So that would be possible. Now it's a completely new year. Um, everything has changed. Uh, it doesn't look like, I mean, I, I, I think scoring 60-something points more than Fabio Quartararo in his current iteration, and with the Yamaha in the state that it is, which is clearly a much better motorcycle than it was last year, I think that's really asking a lot. But as you said, two races, let's not be handing out the trophies just yet. Yes, yes. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, I would I would say, I would state otherwise. I just think that uh, what Mark achieved last weekend, uh, he didn't race, he didn't, uh, he didn't ride on the Friday or the Sunday, he didn't score any points. However, his presence there uh, just sent out this this kind of message that he's not going to stop absolutely not going to stop and um it's i think no matter how strong quartararo is uh, how much improved vinales may feel he is uh the fact that marquez was just there and he generated the kind of storylines that he did i mean he was there for a reason he tried to tried to score some points obviously however i think his presence and the fact that he's posting videos of him doing these push-ups so soon after the surgery, there has to be some kind of playing or mental games going on. Um, and yeah, I think even when he's not there on the grid, 
the riders are still probably thinking about him are still probably internally thinking I need to gain as much ground as possible because he's going to be chasing us down quite soon yeah I mean it was very silverback gorilla um, it was it was all very alpha male so yes it was very uh, there, there was definitely a lot of that there was definitely also I mean like Mark Marcus does this primarily for for himself but one of the things he does for himself is try to dominate people because he wants to win so um just yeah as you say sh- showing i'm doing press ups i haven't been beaten yet is also a message and i think i mean one of the things that i'm most looking forward to throughout this season is well not just this season throughout the throughout the coming years is this sort of psychological battle between mark marquez and fabio quartararo because i think Mark Marcus is the mentally the strongest rider I think I've ever seen. And Fabio Quartararo is not afraid of him and not intimidated by him. And that's just fantastic fun because they will not back down. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, Fabio's um Fabio's recent um responses to Mark's intimidation techniques have just been to to smile, to nod, to brush it off and then jump back in the bike and go at it again and I'm not seeming any way intimidated. And uh, I think that bodes wonderfully for for us as 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 fans uh, of MotoGP for the next five, six years. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So Mark is extraordinary stuff what he did. Absolutely extraordinary. But he comes away from the Andalusian Grand Prix with no points, as opposed to Fabio Quartararo. Another week, another win, 50 points from a possible 50. And in my opinion, David, this was even more impressive than uh, than his previous Grand Prix race win, his first. He's now the second youngest rider ever to win back-to-back Grand Prix in the Premier class. Uh, Marquez was the only man younger. The previous holder of uh, that second-place honour was Freddie Spencer. So Fabio uh, is taken records away from some of the very best there ever have been um did you do you share my view was this more impressive than his first race win yeah absolutely mostly because what he did this time was correct all of the mistakes from his first race so him uh the start was a problem the fir- in the first race he fixed that he got away right brilliantly uh yeah absolutely superbly he just he led you know he led uh you know lights the flag that's exactly what you want um, well, it's exactly what you want when you're on a Yamaha and and need to be in front. So, yeah, this was this was, and also just the the way that he managed the race as well. He was his consistency, uh, his ability to focus, especially because it was a long, long race. He said, I think, at the press conference that um, uh, you know he, he started to feel like the race must be nearly over. And then he looked at it and it was lap twelve, or the, you know, it was lap twelve, but it was he was still only halfway. Um, and he thought, ah, oh, right. Well, better, better knuckle down. So, yeah, it's um, it, honestly this this one to me was more impressive than the, the than last week. As impressive as as last week's race was, because he was brilliant last week. I think uh, I might extend what you just said, David, and say that the whole weekend was more impressive than than last weekend because we saw through free practice one and free practice two last year. Fabio was a was a hound for finishing P1 or P2 in every single session that we had. And it's almost like this thing that you see with rookies where they have to see their name at the top of the timesheets. But we saw Fabio, I think, outside the top 12 uh, on Friday, and he didn't care at all. He said, you know what, this is a, a new strategy that we've got for this year where we just work on race setup, we're doing different tire tests and assessing all the different compounds that are available. Um, that he's, he's only 21 and he's already thinking like that. That I think is, is very impressive. And then as you said, uh, his ability to maintain his focus during the race, he's proving to be quite remarkable at reading changeable conditions because we all know that MotoGP race happens after Moto2. The grip conditions are different to free practice and qualifying when there is no Moto2 rubber down. Uh, they're, they're dealing with the kind of Moto3 class being ahead of them. Um, and yeah, Fabio can just clear off in those opening laps. It is a very Lorenzo-esque quality that he, that he appears to have. And there's not many riders in the world that can do that, that can adapt to uh, conditions so quickly. 
No, exactly. I mean, the the, the other rider who uh, who is notoriously good uh, good at doing that is Mark Marquez, which is why he's so good in flag to flag races, for example. Um, but yeah, to be able to push the way that uh, Fabio did at the start made made a huge difference. I, I I do think that one of the big differences as well is the fact that he's won a race. Winning a race is such a huge psychological um, change for people. They they realise okay. This thing that I've dreamed of, I can do it now. Now let's try and take the next step. I remember uh, listening to a um, an interview with a pianist a very long time ago when when he was at the conservatory learning how to um, uh, how to become a, a classical pianist. Um, there was one piece that he was trying to uh, trying to learn, and his teacher in the end sort of turned around to him and said, "Are you are you still a virgin?" And he said, "Yeah. Why? Why do you ask?" He says, "No, you've got to, you know." find somebody and then come back afterwards and then you'll be able to play it. And this basically happened, you know, this, this pianist, you know, met a girl, um, uh, they, um, uh, made some sweet, sweet love and he came back and all of a sudden he could play this music. And I think it's exactly the same with, with racers and winning that first win is not just like, okay. Um, I can see my potential is there, but how do I get there? It's like, okay, I can see my potential is there. This is how I got there. This is the next step. It's it, it's taking this next step. It frees them. It also frees it frees them of a lot of of, of the the burden of expectation and the stress of wanting to win because they know they can win. It was interesting listening to. Uh, I was writing something about Fabio uh, this morning actually, and I was going back to the end of uh, the first race at Jerez and listening to Simon Crefar. Dorna's Pitlane reporter interviewing Wilco Zielenberg. And then I went back to FP1 at the Andalusian Grand Prix, the most recent race, and uh, listened to Simon interview Wilco in both of those sessions. And, and, you know, whether it's two minutes after his riding, rider securing his first victory, um, or whether it's at the start of a weekend, Zielenberg just has the same tone, same outlook, and he has this very grounded nature. And I think having him there is just absolutely perfect for for someone like fabio who's still young excitable emotional as we've seen and i think zielenberg and that structure has been quite key in keeping him level-headed yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean uh, i uh, perhaps i'm even a little bit biased because wilco is dutch a lot of that um that structure is dutch um but they have uh, also with, with johan stegerfeld swedish very again a very stable grounded um, you know, not excitable. Uh, it's a really, really strong. It's a really, really strong stru- structure, and just that it's it's funded properly. They went to a lot of effort to assemble the team. They actually, you know, the team selection was really, really important. So that turned into, you know, what they've built is something really, really incredible and really important. And it's, you know, it's not. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not simple. It certainly is not. Um, fantastic stuff for Quattararo. Uh, pretty great stuff on the surface for Yamaha. I mean, they've got riders first and second in the championship. They've had two back-to-back one-twos. They had an all-Yamaha podium for the first time since Australia 2014. It seems that it couldn't get any better. However, there's a little suspicion that it might be about to get a lot worse. Uh, and when you're at the top, the only way is down, obviously. However, uh, there's been uh, these recurring uh, technical issues with uh, Yamaha's 2020 engines, which, uh, well, Lynn Jarvis uh, said in an interview with BT Sport on Sunday afternoon that uh, they're of real concern because Rossi uh, retired from last Sunday's race. Sorry, uh, the first one, so yeah, <laughs> exactly. nine days ago, whatever, yes. yeah. There we go, nine days ago, and Franco Morbidelli retired out of this one. Maverick Finale, yep. sorry, yes, Maverick Finales is already on his fifth engine. They've only got five engines for a thirteen-round season. Yeah, uh, one of those has been withdrawn. I mean, this is this is quite worrying, right? Yeah, that I mean, it's genuinely very worrying uh, because of what's happened. I mean, on the surface, it, it looks really worrying because I've been sort of digging a little bit deeper trying to look at things. And, I mean, there is sort of a reason for hope, but it's still a really, really tough situation. If you look at what happened, the good news is it didn't go bang. There was no smoke, uh, you know, like we saw with Peko Banyaya, for example, who we'll talk about later on. Um, you know, Peko's engine definitely went bang. 
because it was chucking smoke out everywhere. Um, and even if it didn't, even if it was just an oil hose or something like that, which came loose, that was a lot of, uh, it will have run for a long time with, with something going wrong. This looks more like uh, an electrical problem um, or an electronic, well, no, an electrical problem. The, 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 the rumors are that it's a, the, the, the issue is with a sensor, um, but it's, it's a sensor behind the Dorner seals, so they can't change it. The reason to believe it is a CNC is the fact that um, if you go back and watch the onboard fit uh, footage, you can see that the engine keeps running. So um, what happens is just the power goes away. And so you saw the same with Maverick Vinales's uh, bike. He was going down the back straight, and then all of a sudden at the end, he sits up. Um, also, Morbidelli, Rossi, you know, they're, they're coming out of the final corner and they're full gas to get out of it. And then all of a sudden the power goes and they sort of pull over and switch uh, switch off. And especially with Morbidelli's, Morbidelli's was really clear that um, he was still able to ride it around the corner. You know, he's, he shifts up third, fourth, and then basically the bike won't rev. That looks like the ECU cussing in and saying, I have a problem. I can't give you full power. Um, I'm going to switch the power off until I can figure out what's, what's going on. So that, that would be different than if it was a proper mechanical problem. So if it had been a design fault in the, I don't know, the crankshaft bearings or the, or the uh, cylinders or piston rings or crankshafts, whatever, if it had been a design fault there. For example, Suzuki a long time ago when these uh, engine rules were first uh, introduced, they had a problem with their, uh, I think it was the valve springs, um, which weren't, uh, w which weren't returning it properly. And that, you know, that was basically meant the engine was destroy destroying itself all the time. Um, this is much more uh, of, you know, if they can change the sensor for one which is more reliable, it should work better. It should, you know, not break. Um, so if they can get permission from the MSMA, because they're not allowed to break the seals unless the MSMA, uh, they can convince the MSMA that uh, by doing so, one, it's a safety issue. And I suppose, you know, not having bikes suddenly stop in the middle of the track is fairly unsafe. But also, there's no performance advantage, and you know, having a working sensor somewhere is not really a performance incentive. It's, it's not like they're going to be able to extract more horsepower out of the engine that way. It just it just means that the thing will work uh, and and last for 25 laps or or whatever. So, it's it's a complicated situation. Um, it's difficult, especially for Valentina Rossi and and uh, Maverick Vinales. Because they have had two engines withdrawn, and what that what that also means is they've actually had to open the engines to see what was to see what was wrong. That also points to it not being a major component because the way that the engines are designed since the engine durability rules came in is there are lots of passages and uh, holes and stuff that they can stick cameras in without breaking the seals um, and uh, take a good look at the bearing surfaces and all the rest of it to see if there's any bits of metal floating around or uh, other signs of uh, unusual unexpected wear that doesn't seem to be the case so it, it you know it's on the one hand, it's optimistic, but on the other hand, um, yes, Maverick Vinales is on his fifth engine, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that's the last the engine that he's got for the rest of the season. It means that potentially he has to do uh, 11 races on four engines instead of still having five engines like, like the rest of them. Um, Vinales and Rossi have definitely lost an engine. Uh, we don't know about Morbidelli. If it's this uh, sensor again, then they might be able to find out, uh, they might be able to sort of salvage that particular engine by, you know, they will be able to run a certain number of tests to, to, to be able to test it without actually having to break the seals to, to take it apart and, and have a look. But they might still want to take it apart and have a look just, just to be on the safe side. Yeah, um, there were, well, it's uh, it's certainly an interesting conundrum. Um, if we're looking at the races that are coming up, we have a triple header uh, in Europe, which is slightly unprecedented. But if you look at the circuits we're going to, Brno and then double header in Austria, uh, could we really have a, a more testing run of races for uh, bikes, engines, especially engines that are already a little bit slower than pretty much every other bike in the field. Um, like they can't really afford to be running less revs or lower power 
in these races coming up? No, I mean, Bruneau is not so bad because Bruneau is a proper Yamaha track. It's a flowing, it's a lovely, lovely circuit. It's fast flowing, lots and lots of cutbacks. It it offers the Yamahas really the opportunity to use their strengths. Riders can really use the strength of the Yamaha uh, to get away. But then you've got that hill, horsepower hill, um, which is... It is genuinely incredibly steep. When you go out there, I mean, the first time I saw it, I would I, I walked around the circuits, you know, in the direction of traffic uh, or in, in the direction that the, that the riders ride it. And you sort of, you don't realize that you're going downhill quite so much. But once I got to the bottom of it and you look up to where it goes, it looks like a mountain road. Um, it is genuinely really steep. And if you're walking back up again, I mean, apart from the fact that it hurts um, having to walk back up again. Um, but it, if you go out and watch trackside, you see the photographers coming by on scooters and you know some of the larger photographers are loaded down uh, with another 20 25 kilos worth of uh, uh, of cameras and and various lenses and, and all sorts of other bits and bobs uh, and their scooters just will barely make it up the hill it is uh, it's really really it's really struggling to get up there so it's it is it's incredibly steep so i think that one for the Yamaha is going to be difficult, but still, I think as a Yamaha rider, I'd be quite uh, quite um, optimistic. If you look back, he's won. Rossi's won there and Lorenzo's won there. So, you know, it, it's a good track for, for Yamaha. But uh, Austria, all of those long straights where it's just wide open and the climb, again, the climb up the hill where it's just wide open, up the hill, up to turn three. It's, yeah, I, I, I would not, uh, that's the one that I'd be really frightened of. Yeah, and we've got a double header there. And we've also got four factory Ducatis on the grid this year and a uh, pretty sharp looking uh, 2020 Honda engine as well. So it's, um, yeah, that's going to be a real tough one, a real slog. Championship credentials are really going to be tested there, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, uh, as you say, like the the Ducati is just a rocket ship around there, and then the Honda as well. It, it it's not short of horses, so it that one is going to be really um, uh, it's going to be really interesting. I think one more one more um, uh, positive point for Yamaha is the fact that Valentino Rossi seems to have genuinely found something like a changed man and they 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 changed i've been trying to find out what they actually changed on the bike but it looks like they've they've radically changed the uh, the, the setup for him they're letting him use a setup which the yamaha engineers don't want him to use but it i mean he looked so much more comfortable on the bike and the way he held off maverick vinales for lap after lap was just extremely impressive yeah i mean uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that because um rossi had a disastrous weekend it was it was painful to watch really um the first MotoGP race of the year um and he had some pretty pointed comments actually after the after his first podium since uh what austin last year 465 days i think it was something like that yeah, crazy amount of time for for rossi um but yeah he was saying that uh, basically he had to really fight him and his crew and he give a special shout out to David Munoz his uh, new crew chief this year uh, they really had to fight against some of the uh, the Japanese engineers for for not wanting him to go in a certain direction um, and and he basically had to say like look I'm not uh, Maverick Vinales or Fabio Quattararo I'm a very different build of rider uh, different weight heavier you know just you have to start working for me I don't care what works for them like this is what I need and um, it, it took some internal bickering and fighting for, for him to get his way, which seems quite ridiculous because we always have said that, oh, you know, Rossi calls the shots and he can do whatever he wants in Yamaha, but here is evidence to the contrary. Well, yeah, but we saw this at the start of this year when uh, Yamaha signed Fabio Quartararo to the factory team for two years and they signed Maverick Vinales to the factory team for two years and they made it quite clear that Maverick Vinales was their number one rider and would be leading development. So they'd already made their decision, you know, rightly so, based on the results from last year. That's that's all you have to go by. And the problem is that, that um, factories work with data and they look at lots and lots of data and they know they all the engineers have all this data that says that within these setup parameters, this bike is really competitive. And they don't know what the bike will do once you get outside of those parameters. Or they might have a little bit of data which points 
in a particular direction that it, you know, that it won't, won't really work. So they don't want the riders getting outside of that. I mean, he, what Valentino Rossi also said was, um, the engineers were telling him, no, 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 you need to change your riding style. And, you know, he didn't want to do that. He was looking for a particular feeling on the bike. And this change in setup, uh, gave him that different feel. It gave him the confidence in the bike to be able to, you know, push more to understand what the bike was doing. The question is, does it last? When we get to Bruno, will it will it work just as well there? Yeah, but um, considering the temperatures that we had on Sunday and, and Rossi's uh, big issue being uh, tire degradation for the past well twelve months more or less, um, this certainly did look uh, did look quite promising. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his podium, to an extent, you could say, yeah, all right, his podium was uh, it was lucky because Pekka Banyar's engine blew up, you know, Morbidelli had a problem, uh, Jack Miller crashed out, um, lots of things happened sort of like in, in front of him or just behind him. There's nothing that Valentino Rossi can do about that. He, he was competitive with Maverick Vinales, the rider who finished second, uh, for most of the race, which is uh, really, you know, something very, very different. And when I was making this point that uh, he might have been slightly fortunate, for, uh, fortunate because you also take into account that Alex Rins was injured, he probably would have been up there had he not been. Mark Marquez would certainly have been up there had he not been injured. Um, <clears throat> even if Rossi finished sixth, you would still say that's uh, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround from where he was, where it was the depths of the top ten, maybe even outside the top ten. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because the point about it is that he finished, what is it, five and a half seconds behind Fabio Quartararo. And I think it's been a very long time since he's finished that close uh, to the winner. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it genuinely, genuinely looks a lot, uh, 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 looks a lot more promising. Yeah, and talking about promising, uh, the man who finished ahead of him, it was it was strange because, you know, Vinales beat Rossi uh, for second place in the end. Um, however, uh, I certainly had a more positive view of Rossi's Sunday than I had of Vinales' Sunday. It was just one another one of those, it was just a typical Vinales performance, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, it was. Yeah, I mean, it really... Um the fact that he couldn't pass Valentino Rossi. I mean, Rossi rode brilliantly, don't get me wrong. But um, the point is that when you, if you have aspirations for the title, then you have to be able to pass or at least attempt to pass on Valentino Rossi on days like that. Um, you have to find a way of sticking it up the inside and finding a way past. And that was what seemed to be wrong with, um, uh, with Vinales this week was he just couldn't try. It was a, I mean, it it it's strange to say, you know, he finished second. He seconded the championship, but it was a fairly anonymous performance almost. It was just, it didn't feel like um, Vinales was ever a real threat. Uh, and he's certainly not, you know, after about halfway through the first lap, after about, you know, turn five or turn six. Uh, well, no, all right. So maybe the, the first lap Vinales was still close, but after that, it was it was a foregone conclusion, and there was no way that uh, that Vinales was ever, ever going there. And I, I think that has to be a concern if you're Maverick Vinales, because I mean, you really want to have beaten Fabio Quartararo um, uh, at one of these races. Yes, you really would have done. And also, this is another weekend when Vinales' pace throughout free practice was astonishing. Uh, he came within centimeters of, of pole position he had his, his fastest lap cancelled um, because he uh, exceeded the track limits Vinales wasn't there this is another everything's falling into line yet he still manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory um, <laughs> and it, yeah it's a concern because you're saying he can't get uh, past Rossi it's not like he's uh, he's up against Ducati which has a significant uh, top speed advantage on the straights and he's having to come from way back it, it's the guy on the same bike and, and and it was strange to hear, I know Vinales is, is one of the fittest guys on the grid um, and also pretty exceptional circumstances, the conditions being as hot as they were. But for him to say, oh, I decided to, to back off Rossi, which to be fair, seemed like a genuine concern because we heard so many people complaining about the, the front tires overheating whenever they were in another rider slipstream. But as soon as he did that, he got mugged by the two primary Ducatis, got mugged by Morbidelli and suddenly he's, he's fifth and... It's like you're supposed to be leading this race. You, you know, going off your free practice speed, you should be, you should be matching Quadraro. Um, but as it stands, I, I wouldn't even. Well, 
I was about to say I wouldn't even put Vinales in the championship fight. Maybe that's overstating it too much, but this has just happened one too many times for me to think he can overcome this magically. There might be one or two races when everything falls into line, like Aston or or uh, Malaysia last year. But um, yeah, I think uh, Quadraro is showing to be a superior rider in many regards at this time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, uh, as you say, you know, like Aston, uh, if Maverick Vinales can get away at the front, then he can just punish everyone behind him with his pace. Uh, and, uh, you know, people will struggle to keep up with him. But if he can't do that, then he's in real trouble. Then, then you know, he's going to have to learn some new tricks. He's going to have to uh, find some new tools to try to get past people to be able to compete. Because it is, like you say, it's going to be it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult, David. Absolutely agree with you on that. Now, enough of Yamaha. We've been talking about them for uh, forever. It's time to move on to uh, to Ducati um, because that was a, a really very, very interesting weekend for the Bologna factory. Um, what a difference a week can make. Last week's show, I was given out and uh, shot my shot my mouth off at uh, the factory the factory bosses for not having signed up Andrea De Vizioso sooner. Uh, really strong third place in the first MotoGP race of the year. And then uh, it doesn't quite go right. But let's forget Dovi for a moment because this was all about Pekka Banyaya. You take Quadraro away and this was a... This was a mesmeric performance. I mean, where did where has this come from, from uh, Banyai? This is really quite something. Yeah, I mean, good question. Where did it come from? I mean, uh, it was pleasing. It was, In fact, it was pleasing to see both Pekka Banyai and Franco Morbidelli make such a big step forward because last year, um, you know, we expected a lot of them, but they were both disappointments, and especially Banyai because he was, uh, you know, he'd been so superb in Moto2 and he was pretty anomalous last year. Um, uh, for me, definitely the biggest disappointment. Um, and then we see him now, and he seems to have found some proper, some real genuine speed and the kind of competitiveness. Now, obviously, he's on, he's on the current bike, where last year he was on a, a year old bike, which maybe that also does something to a rider sort of mentally. It makes them not, not think about you know they, they already think they're at a disadvantage so they focus on that too much but um uh yeah i mean banyaya was looking absolutely fantastic until until his engine let go um which is just a real it was a real shame um but given when i'm in pit lane and a ducati comes in you can tell that it's, a, that it's a Ducati because you can smell it. It, it smells like it's almost on fire uh, because everything is packed so tightly and there's so much heat coming from these bikes that it, it, it sort of smells singed all the time. So, yeah, it's not really a, a surprise that in that just absolutely searing heat, the Pekka Banyaya's um, engine goes pop. But it was a very, very, it, it was a great shame because he was, he was as, you, as you said, he just looked absolutely fantastic. I thought, I'll be honest, I thought he was a crash waiting to happen in the, the early laps because he was making repeated attempts and lunges on Miller and it looked slightly hairy because everyone was feeling the conditions out, looked as though they were on the limit and you thought, well, Pecco, right, you're already doing quite well here because I think he was in fifth place and that, you know, that's that's a good result for, for him if you take last year's form into consideration. But then he just got by... Miller and the two factory Ducati, sorry, factory Yamahas as if they weren't there. And uh, yeah, he was running Quadraro's pace. Once he was in second, he was running the same pace as the leader, um, which shows you why he was so so anxious in the in the early stages to get by everyone um, because he knew that. Um, and this wasn't just in the race. This was uh, in qualifying. He got his first MotoGP front row on Saturday. Um, this is a Jerez, which we all know is a, is a bad track for Ducati. Um, I, I was quite blown away by this. Um, and to kind of reiterate what I said last week, I think, you know, clearly the most improved rider from 2019 to 2020. Um, any any idea? You, you mentioned, obviously, he's on the, the new bike and stuff. But um, in terms of... Pecco's approach uh, is there anything you've sensed from speaking to him uh, that that's kind of changed not no not really there isn't anything there isn't anything obvious then it's just a question of maturity it's just you know experience as you say approach uh, just getting used to it and being uh, being more confident in the whole in the, in the whole situation yeah um I also think that 
if you look at last year, um, I mean, Peko um, might not always have been the quickest guy in Moto2. In his championship year, he was more or less um, one of the two fastest guys throughout. But he was ridiculously consistent. And uh, I went back and checked. I was writing about him today, actually. And I went back and checked uh, his record in Moto2. He had 30 consecutive point scoring finishes in Moto2 from... June 2017 up until his final race at, at the end of uh, 2018 his championship year throw him in a situation like 2019 when he struggled by his own admission to understand Ducati's or sorry uh, Michelin's front tyre um, could never really work on his braking technique he said that uh, at Jerez that this year he seems to have got the breaking sussed out. And that was something he just could not really understand or get his head around last year. I think having so many crashes, he had 14 crashes last year. And for a guy that was as consistent as he was in previous years, who's not used to crashing, I mean, it's kind of like the, the Jorge Lorenzo thing. Like when you have one, it, it really makes a dent on your on your confidence. Um, so I think that maybe played a big impact. Um, oh, he's getting used to it. He's adjusted his braking. On Sunday, it was quite interesting listening to Davizioso because, because he said, yeah, what Peko's doing with the rear brake and the way he's sliding the bike is actually working with this new rear Michelin construction better than what I'm doing. And Davizioso's, uh, let's say, dogmatic riding style, perhaps, is that maybe being a bit harsh, but it seems that Peko's been able to adapt himself a little bit more to the rear tire more than Petrucci and Davizioso as well. Yeah, I mean, that definitely, it, it's, it is interesting that um, Bagnaia was doing better than Dovicioso on this new rear tyre because the new rear tyre really helps with, with with slowing the bike up because you can use the rear to, 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 to slow the bike a lot better. Um, you can't use it to turn in the same way, which is um, where the, the Ducatis are, and perhaps the Hondas are struggling most because you can't use the throttle. To, it's, it's not easy to, to, to slide the thing smoothly and predictably. Um, because the tyre just basically has more grip. But it does help with this extra grip to actually slow the bike. Uh, that means that you're not stressing the front as much. Um, you're using the rear of the bike to sort of drag the bike, uh, drag the back, the, drag the bike backwards to slow it down. And, and so you're not having to put so much pressure on the front. And it means that you can actually, you know, Break more consistently and more smoothly, uh, and that definitely seems to be where Benyaya is gaining. And perhaps that's the one thing where um, uh, Dovicioso has to sort of get his head around to to understand to change. Yeah, Dave. Just a question. I don't suppose you saw. Um, I was doing some research on on Banyai today. Jack Miller gave some really interesting quotes uh, back in June after he had signed his uh, his deal with Ducati to step up to the factory squad next year. And he was asked about Banyai when he was interviewed by uh, Sky Italia. I'll just read you what he said because his comments I thought were quite interesting and quite telling, perhaps where Peko may have made a bit of a progression. And he said, uh, sometimes he's too demanding on himself. He has the word go free or the words go free written on his leathers, be free, but I don't see a free person. I see that he works a lot. He's determined. He's very talented. Every day after the session, he sits in front of the computer and watches the telemetry for hours. He has to relax, maybe as he used to do back in the past. So, um, yeah, you do wonder. I think we might have to uh, to maybe try and speak to some team personnel in, in the coming weeks. But uh, you do wonder whether Pekka has changed that side of his approach as well. I was also speaking to someone, Hareth, who um, is, is usually in the pit lane um, when MotoGP sessions are going on. And um, he said he just seems a lot more composed and relaxed. There was a an air of maybe petulance last year when you come into the box and see that his times weren't fast or the bike wasn't working, get a bit, uh, maybe throw the old tent or two. Uh, however, it, it just seems a lot more calm and more assured this year. And I guess that just comes with maturity as well. So I think it's interesting. Now, I want to ask you, what does this do for the contract situation of Andrea Davizioso? Do you think, does this have any bearing? Could could Banyaya feature on, on you know, Paolo Ciabatti's radar? I would... Uh I would like to uh, point the uh, honourable gentleman to the results sheet where he will find uh, Andrea Dovizioso was the first Ducati across the line and the uh, and the one actually scoring the points. Um, again, that's what Desmo Dovi does. This is what Do Do and this is why you have Andrea Dovizioso because he will be there. He won't do something silly. Jack Miller, another another case in point. Uh, 
brilliant ride last week. Uh, this week, he's struggling a little bit more, pushed too hard, fell off. It's clear how much talent Jack Miller has, but he, he couldn't help himself. Um, he, you know, he, he pushed too hard and fell off. David Chiosa did not fall off. David Chiosa realized he had a limitation and he rode to the limitation. And he got everything out of it, out of the limitation. Paco blew his engine up in front of him. You know, that's nothing that Dovi can do, but Dovicioso crossed the line in sixth and scored points and is what now? Third. Third? Third? Yeah. 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 He is still in the championship hunt. So, yeah, if I'm Andrea Dovicioso, if I'm Andrea Dovicioso's manager, I would uh, be on the phone to Paolo Ciabatti uh, to point out that um, uh, you'll never, you, well, to ask him who was the, who was the first Ducati finisher at the second race in Perth. Who's the daddy? That's what uh, Simone Battistella will be saying on the phone. Is that what you're saying, David Emmett? Pretty much. Okay, okay. It's interesting. Uh, I think it's it's a situation to, to definitely keep our eyes on. Uh, I don't know if you read, there was a, a report, I think, in the Gazeta dello Sport this morning uh, with some comments from Tardozzi. Uh, Tardozzi was uh, saying how disappointed he was with Davizioso's performance on Sunday. Uh, and the article itself made mention of how there was a end of year end of an era sort of feel in the Ducati garage and we'd know that the Gazette is obviously uh, quite well tuned into the inner workings of the uh, the Ducati factory um and I don't know whether that was maybe uh, over egging the uh, the situation but um well I thought it was maybe some food for thought yeah I mean it's a strange it is so strange because I mean it really does feel like a, a, a an end of an era it really does feel like sort of the relationship is coming to an end but there doesn't seem to be any good reason for that to be the case because, you know, David is still competitive. It just does seem to be sort of like one of those um, old marriages who stuck together while the kids were at school and now the kids are at university and they're just sick to the back teeth of each other and there's no real animosity or anything. It's just sort of like, nah, tired, let's go do something else. We know that the bike doesn't turn that well, Andrea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there are other ways to overcome this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is do. fast, Andrea. It is fast. <laughs> <laughs> so something to something to keep our eyes on. Um, okay, so we've talked about Ducati. Uh, we haven't got much time left in this show, so let's go on to perhaps the big losers uh, of the of the weekend uh big losers i mean aprilia pfft, like what, what has happened there uh we thought that that bike well alicia spargo thought that bike would be challenged for podiums it looks anything but a podium bike uh, suzuki they were supposed to be championship challengers and what mears come away with one fifth place alex rins with a tenth um so that's uh that's not too too great in terms of points and then ktm paulus bargro looked like he had a uh, podium potential in free practice and uh well brad binder launched miguel Oliveira at the first turn and then crashed himself launched himself and, and paulus bargro never really seemed to get going um let's start with uh well let's start with ktm Div. what um what was your assessment of uh, their grand prix Again, it's one of those things where you can see all of the pieces are there. It's a proper, it's a jigsaw puzzle. You can see all of the pieces are there, and it's just a question of putting them all in the right place, and then and then it'll all fit. Um, but they can't seem to get a break. The bike still has a few issues, especially around sort of uh, top speed. It can't overtake Ducati. If, if, if a KTM gets stuck behind a Ducati, uh, then Paulus Bargaro at least can't find his way past. It would be interesting to see what Brad Binder could do. Only Brad Binder, uh, it, well, first of all, he needs to sort of stay on the bike for a little while, not get into trouble in the early laps. That once he actually starts racing, it's going to be really. Once he actually sort of can put a race together, it's going to be really interesting because he really, he really is clearly extremely fast. Um, a real shame for Miguel Oliveira as well because Oliveira looks really, really strong this weekend. Um, so, yeah, it looks like the bike is good. Espargaro is good, but there are some weaknesses in his, perhaps in his riding, but also definitely in the bike that um, uh, if he gets stuck behind someone, then it's, then it's difficult to get past. Um, Brad Bender is just rookie and experienced that he keeps on you know, messing up. Because even the incident with Oliveira, Brad Bender said he saw a flash of red on his inside. He planned out his line 
and he saw a flash of red and realized that Danilo Petrucci, well, he didn't know it was Danilo Petrucci, but he realized there was a bike there. There was a Ducati on the line that he was going to take and he had to react. And, you know, his, his reaction set was um, the wrong one for him, the wrong one for uh, Miguel Oliveira, especially. Yeah, a shame. Um, I, 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 the, you can see the potential is there. It's just that they, they, they can't put that potential on track. At some point they will, but not this weekend. Yeah, Paul Espargaro said uh, something quite interesting on Sunday. He said, if you had told me before this double header that I would leave Jerez uh, fourth in the championship and still be quite disappointed, I think that would be a sign of how far we've come. Which, uh, which is which is certainly true. Uh, Suzuki, um, they've told us that they have two riders that can possibly win races this year. Um, well, they they can win races if they don't fall off the bike. <laughs> yes, uh, true. Uh, but uh, Joanne Mir didn't fall off the bike, and uh, he didn't really look like he was going to win a race at Hereth. And uh, no, they were again. I keep using this word anonymous. They they didn't really look. Uh, sort of, you know, shocking. There was, it was a, it was an extremely competent race. Fifth is not bad. Um, how far did they finish behind? Not particularly, uh, you know, 7.6 seconds. That's not bad. It's, it's not great, but it's not bad. Um, it, you know, it was competent. Um, and of course, you know, he was, what is he, fifth, but he, would have been behind Pekka Banyaya and Jack Miller and Franco Morbidelli, so it could have been a lot, lot worse. Mm, yeah. Um, Alex Rins, though, uh, what, a, what a heroic performance that was because it was, uh, what, eight days after he um, he suffered a, a dislocation fracture of his right shoulder and uh, there he was uh, plowing on 10th uh, place in the end. Um, I mean, it's it's going to be a, a massive ask for Rins to, to get back in the championship fight, but um, he certainly showed a lot of heart on Sunday. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, no doubting his courage whatsoever, but I think um, I'm actually more worried by Rins's injury than Marquez's injury because Marquez's injury was a straight break in the middle of his arm which is bad and painful and all that other stuff. And especially, you know, if, if there had been nerve damage there, then that would have been really bad. Uh, luckily, there was no nerve damage. But Rins' injury, they've, it's, it's messed up some of the, some of the ligaments in his, in his shoulder. And ligaments don't heal very quickly. Um, in fact, sometimes they don't heal at all. Now, his shoulder may get better or it may not. I, I mean, I don't know exactly how much ligament damage there is in his shoulder. Um, but that, that could be a problem for the entire season and that would be that would be really really difficult for Rins because both of them I mean you know in, in the preseason they looked really really good the bike is really good it's just sort of like seeming to put put the whole thing uh, put the whole thing together I think uh, Juan Mir also had a little bit of problem with the with the conditions but you know the conditions were the same for everyone it was just it was just really really tough uh, I would like to point out that uh, I actually think Juan Mir did a pretty good race on Sunday I was it's may have sounded like I was quite dismissive of his fifth place but um, I think what we saw at Hareth was Mir's inexperience uh, he got a bit uh, flustered by a poor start in the first race crashed early on I think he collided with uh, with Bradley Smith um, and didn't really manage the start of his race very well at all but his pace was pretty good um, and um, again he isn't using the whole shot device at this point. I think Rins used it on Sunday. Um, once he gets the whole shot device, I think his stars might be a lot better. He still needs to work on that qualifying though. Um, and I think there is something inherent in that in that Suzuki. He just can't take advantage of uh, the, the added grip of a new tire. And that, that really does seem to cost them on a Saturday afternoon. I remember speaking to um, to one of uh, Joanne Mir's team members uh, at the Qatar test. And the Qatar, was, Qatar test was fantastic for both Suzuki guys. They were so quick and their pace was excellent. Uh, however, they did seem quite concerned that those qualifying issues would remain. There is something in that bike that is just, um, yeah, they, they, they can't really maximize the, uh, the potential of a new tire. Um, I think Mir, though, at Brno, uh, going back to the scene of his big crash last year, I think that could be a, a pretty interesting proposition. I, I expect him to be up there again uh, in Brno. And that takes us to a predictive, um, not great so far for Alicia Spargro. Uh, no, no. Two crashes. He's not good. Uh, not big or clever. What Alicia said about the bike is that it is 
you know, fantastic chassis, fantastic handling, um, but he has to push it. He's lacking in acceleration and horsepower, and so he's having to push it too hard to try to keep up. And when you push things too hard with track degrees of 60, you know, track temperatures of 60 degrees, then occasionally you fall off. And that seems to be what happened with um, with Alace this weekend. You know, Bradley Smith is finding his feet as a racer again. Um, he needs to find, you know, half a second or so uh, a lap just to be competitive again. But yeah, Alacia Spargaro, uh, Alacia Spargaro sounded absolutely devastated on uh, on Sunday night. He was not um, not a happy bunny at all. Really... Again, I think there's a lot of potential in uh, in the in the Aprilia. It's a you know it's a proper MotoGP bike. It's just that it's way too much. It's too down on power. But they're just starting with this engine, um, and so the they should be able to get the power out of it. It's just that you know they're not going to have it at Brno. They're not going to have it at um, uh, in Austria, which is going to be really difficult. They might have a bit more power in Misano, might be a bit more competitive there. Um, but this is definitely, it's still a developmental year, but it's, it's a developmental year with prospects of better, but that can be really, really mentally draining as well. Mentally draining when you maybe set standards as highly as he did, uh, so early in this year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, you know, that's, that's also a lace. His character, he is very, um, uh, he's very up and down. He's very uh, he's, he's very open about his emotions. He responds ex- incredibly emotionally as well. So, sort of managing those emotional emotions is really important. Paul is very different. Paul is much more uh, measured and calm and can manage himself a lot better. But um, uh, Alicia Spargaro is you know he's a, a million miles an hour, and that includes sort of uh, his uh, his emotions. His his emotions uh, look very much like the uh, elevation profile on all of his cycling, which is all the way up to massive peaks and then all the way down to huge, uh, uh, huge, uh, huge valleys and, uh, and, and dips. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's very much uh, Alicia Spargera. Regular listeners of the Panic Pass podcast may say that uh, David Emmett is uh, to Alicia what Neil Morrison is to, uh, to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but that's maybe a discussion for another day. Um, interesting stuff, Dave, interesting stuff. Um, okay. So I think that brings us uh, to the end of uh, of our discussion for this week. Um, unless you have any other bits and bobs that you would like to bring bring to the floor. No, I think uh, I think we covered pretty much uh, most of it. Oh yeah, perhaps a, a quick word for Takaki Nagakami, who uh, had a really um, who had a really solid race. Uh, you know, his best finish in MotoGP. Uh, he was also, uh, let me just check this. He was 16 sec- 16 and a half seconds faster um, in this race than he was in the last race. It's in one way, he, it's a little bit easier for him because he is on a bike which is pretty well sorted. I mean, they've got a lot of experience with the with the 2019 Honda. Um, so they don't have to sort of figure out all of the little foibles which each motorcycle has. Um, but it was it was a really really solid uh, it was a solid result for uh, uh, for Nakagami. Um, not sure he will be able to repeat it in a hurry, um, but at least you know he, he's he's looking more uh, much more competitive. And to be perfectly honest. I thought that Alex Marcus didn't have a terrible race either. He did it actually did quite well. He was nine and a half seconds faster than he was last week, which is exactly the kind of performance you expect. He's um, perhaps he was lucky with so much of the media attention on Mark that he was a little bit overlooked. I mean, certainly judging by his media debriefs, you know, this is a factory Repsol Honda rider. Uh, and yet there were only sort of, you know, a handful of journalists on the call to talk to him. That can help, though. That can help take some of the pressure off. And, and he's just having a he's very having a very Alex Marquez season, which is slowly building and uh, and improving and, you know, t- taking a bit off. He's not he's not he's not his brother's brother, Mark, but he's a perfectly serviceable motor GP racer. It's placed in your second MotoGP race. Not too bad, not too shabby at all for Alex Marquez, even if there were uh, a slew of retirements uh, ahead of him. Um, okay, and well, 
while we're on the subject of Honda, uh, I think we have to give a shout out to Cal Crutchlow as well. Uh, 13th place, even making it to the finish uh, was a, a minor miracle in his physical state. Um, one week on from fr- fracturing a, a small, well, fracturing, small fracture in his left skiffhood. Um, my God, like, can you even begin to imagine uh, trying to trying to hold on to the Honda yeah, for 25 laps. Um, Crutchlow managed it and, um, yeah, you have to say with, hats off. With one hand. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, he, he's holding on to that bike for 25 laps with one hand because he can, you know, he can't do much with his left. It, it was sort of there. Uh, I think if it had done the same injury on his right hand, he probably wouldn't have been able to ride at all. As it was, he had to stop um, uh, uh, just to give his right arm a bit of a relief to let the sort of blood get back into it or perhaps get the blood drain out of it again. And that was why he ended up 13th. But, you know, he didn't give up. He rode, he finished. He did what he's, did what was needed. There's, I mean, the, what you could say a lot of things about Cal Crutchlow, but you can't question his commitment or his courage. Just one tenth of a second off qualifying for Q2 on uh, on qualifying day, which is a pretty remarkable feat. And um, he actually pulled in because he thought that he was, he could see that he was last, but he thought that he was 20th. He didn't realize that so many people had retired, so he thought he was well outside the point. So when he pulled in, he said to his crew, where am I? And they said, oh, you're 13th. And he thought, oh, right, well, I can still score some points. So that's why he went on. He initially thought there's no point riding around in my current state. Um for no points, but uh, yeah, went out, scored three points for for thirteenth. So, hats off to uh, to Cal, another uh, dogged, uh, gritty display. Um, really, we've seen quite a few of those over the years. So, uh, yeah, we've seen quite a few of those performances from David Emmett as well, burning the midnight oil, <laughs> rugged and gritty. Um, but thank you, sir, for your appearance on the uh, the latest edition of the Paddock Pass Pod. A pleasure as always to pick your brain. And thank you very much, uh, Neil Morrison. Always a pleasure to see your smiling face, uh, um, uh, and at least now back in your ho- own home. Yes, yes, that is uh, very nice, I must say. Um, thank you as well, dear listener. Um, always appreciate uh, you giving us a listen. Uh, it's a good time to remind you that, uh, well, we have uh, social media channels, and uh, you should be following us on them. That's uh, Twitter, at Paddock Pass Pod. Uh, facebook.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and uh, we are running a patreon page at the moment um, which uh, it's a little bit difficult for us to find some interesting exclusive content at the moment because journalists aren't really allowed in the paddock Um, but uh, yeah keep your eye on patreon there will be some uh, little goodies for patreon members who can join for as little as three dollars a month yeah, and I think um, with a week off um, this week and then after Austria, uh, there'll be two weeks off and that's going to be a good time f- to send in your questions. So if you um, are on, if you are a Patreon member, then get on Patreon and send us your questions and then maybe we can answer them in the next show. Very good point. Very well made, David Emmett. Thank you again for joining us today thank you as well dear listener we'll be back with the world superbike show next week steve english was uh, staying on at Reth. he'll be there to give you all the lowdown of uh, the second world superbike round of 2020 can't wait to see how that unfolds this weekend can alex Lowe's top rack rasgadioglu mikey vandermark uh, am i missing anyone uh, can all these guys, uh, can, uh, Scott Redding, can they continue taking the fight to uh, Jonathan Ray as they did at uh, the World's Superbike Opener at Phillip Island? Who knows? But uh, Steve English will be there on hand to uh, get all the, the reaction and feedback from uh, a busy weekend at Hareth. I see uh, temperatures are going to be uh, in the high 30s again. So uh, lucky Steve, he's had yeah his third week of that. <laughs> yes, lucky Steve, his third week of sweating into his uh, uh, into his commentary. So keep an eye out for our World Superbike show next week, and until then, talk to you soon. And you could talk about you know like commentating how strange the commentary was and how strange the atmosphere was and all the rest of it, and how strange the fucking heat was. <laughs>